I am uh, in the midst of a sermon series, as you may well know, uh, through the Gospel of Luke, with a an emphasis on prayer. That Jesus had conversations with people. The Holy Spirit spoke with people. Angels carried messages from God to people throughout the course of this gospel. Uh, each of those is a, a form of prayer. God speaking through messengers. God speaking to people directly. Jesus, the Son of God, having conversations with people. And so our emphasis this year is on learning how to pray in a world where God seems to be so distant to so many people, some people having come to the conclusion that God is dead, God is immaterial, irrelevant. Uh, it's important for us to pray because it's through prayer that we are reminded and convinced that God is with us. God is at work revealing himself to us and through us. Last week, we made it up to the story of the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, uh, an event in which Jesus really had his identity reaffirmed by his father. You remember that voice as Jesus was being baptized, that voice that came from the clouds saying, you are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased, that identity would launch Jesus into a three-year uh, ministry that would transform the world. Uh, I, I have mentioned several times the issue of identity and how important that is. I've come to the conclusion that my identity, more than being a good pastor and a good husband and a good father, my identity is that I am a, save, a sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace, loved by my heavenly father. And I have to say that from time to time to remind myself when the devil is trying to, to, to get me uh, off the path that God has chosen for me. I have to remind myself that I'm I'm loved by God. I'm a product of his grace. That's important for us as we are launched into ministry. But I also got thinking this week that that, uh, that certainty of our identity, our identity in Christ, also fortifies us in the face of temptations. It strengthens us when we are being tempted by the devil. Luke tells the story of the baptism, that identity story, and then immediately follows that by a genealogy, different than Matthew's genealogy. But in Luke's, it goes back that uh, Jesus, it was thought, was the son of Joseph, who was the son of, son of, son of, son of, back all the way to the son of Adam, who was the son of God. God. Another reminder of that identity of who Jesus is. And then he immediately launches into the temptation story. I'd like to read that. If you've got a Bible there handy with you, it's Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness 
where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, immediately questioning that identity, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, second time questioning his identity, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. <clears throat> when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The circumstances of this temptation episode are instructive. They're helpful to us. Uh, they are three in number. Jesus was in a harsh environment, wasn't he? He's in the Judean wilderness, just west of the Jordan River after having been baptized there. And the Judean wilderness is one of the most desolate, harsh, inhospitable environments on the entire planet. Uh, Google image the, the Judean wilderness, and you'll see it's just uh, parched, without vegetation, caves and valleys and gorges and mountains and, and just no place to find any sort of shelter from the elements. It's just a harsh environment. And that was where Jesus spent these 40 days. Secondly, he was depleted. Uh, I, we're not much into fasting these days, but for 40 days, Jesus didn't have anything to eat. In another one of the Gospels, it says he didn't have anything to drink either, which is downright miraculous. But at the end of 40 days, he would have been depleted, absolutely drained of all energy and strength and health. And then thirdly, he was alone. In one of the other Gospels, it, it says that when this whole ordeal was over, angels came to minister to him. But, but during these 40 days, regardless of which version of the story we're reading, Jesus was alone on his own. Harsh environment, depleted in so many different ways, alone. These are the circumstances oftentimes when we find ourselves the most vulnerable to temptation, isn't it? Harsh environment, maybe not the Judean wilderness, but imagine times in your life when the circumstances day after day were just harsh in some way. And how have you felt depleted, if not hungry, uh, depleted perhaps of uh, 
fellowship, companionship, depleted of energy, maybe during a period of illness or something like that. And then alone, you know, we can be surrounded by the crowd, surrounded by people, even people that we know and love. But at certain times of our life, we felt alone. So what I would ask you right now for the sake of this sermon this morning is bring to mind an episode in your life when you experienced these kind of temptations, harsh environment, depleted and alone. Think of a time when that's how you felt. Whether you're, you were tempted at all during that period of time, just bring that episode, that period of time to mind. And I'd invite you to try to hold it there in your mind as we go through this story, this temptation saga. It'll be a way of helping you to identify with what Jesus was experiencing, perhaps even the temptations that Jesus was experiencing. So let's take a little bit closer look at those three temptations. The first temptation is to satisfy our most pressing human needs. In the case of Jesus, it was hunger. So the devil tempted him to turn a stone into a loaf of bread to satisfy that pressing human need. He was tempting Jesus at what could be argued was Jesus's weakest point after 40 days of not eating. Jesus may have been physically hungry. Certainly he was physically hungry. But remember, at the beginning of this, this passage, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. We can be weak physically. We can be hungry physically. But Jesus was full of the Spirit. And uh, apparently, a hungry stomach was immaterial to Jesus. <laughs> On the other hand, a hungry soul would have been catastrophic. The second temptation, the progression moves on to the temptation to, to uh, rule the kingdoms of the world. Now, if Jesus wasn't interested in bread to feed his hunger, then I'm, I'm assuming that the devil might have thought, well, perhaps he'd be interested in power. So the devil tells Jesus that he could give him all the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world. <laughs> I can give you all of this, he says. I could give it to anybody I want. Boy, he's feeling awful full of himself, isn't he, the devil? These things, the kingdoms, the authority, the power, they're obviously what the devil thinks are most important. He's trying to imagine what it's like to be a, a hungry, abandoned person out in the wilderness. What would a person that's not interested in, bed, in bread be interested in? Well, perhaps it's powers, kingdoms, authority. And that's what the devil seems to think is most important. Just as a two-year-old looks at all of the, the toys and the things around that surround him or her, and, and, and whatever it is that's there at the moment, that's, that's all they can think of. That's the most important thing. They have to have it now. I want what I want, and I want it now. You can, you can kind of hear that in the, the devil's temptation to Jesus. But Jesus wasn't interested in the power that the devil has to offer. One author that I've read recently calls this the axis of power. 
the power that the world seems to find most important is a power that is uh, manifest in violence and revenge and intimidation. Being able to rule over people and make them do whatever you want to do. That seems to be what the devil is offering Jesus here. You can rule the world, force it to submit to you. I remember in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, this is the worldly power that the, the devil is offering Jesus in this temptation. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, though. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus wasn't entered, as interested in this axis of power, this violent, strong, right-handed power. The power that Jesus was interested in, the power that Jesus would one day wield, the power that Jesus would pass on to us is the power of the cross, which this author that I referred to calls the axis of love which is manifest by love for enemies and a willingness to even lay down your life for something that's that important. So in this second temptation, Satan was offering Jesus something that Jesus knew was only second to best at, at the best. <laughs> this splendor that the devil was offering him is a corrupted splendor that bears absolutely no resemblance to the glory and splendor of God's kingdom. It's a pretty insipid offer, isn't it? Jesus says, uh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> then it's on to the third temptation. I'll call this personal safety. So if personal power is not what Jesus desired, if he wasn't interested in having the kind of authority that would be able to take revenge on those who hurt him, if he wasn't interested in the kind of power that would intimidate people and force them to submit, then the devil probably knew that he would always be, Jesus would always be at the mercy of those who wield that kind of power, the power to harm and to persecute and to kill. Jesus would be living a life for the next three years, potentially of fear that those with that kind of right-handed power would squash his life. So if that was the case, then the devil's probably thinking maybe personal safety would be something that Jesus would be interested. If he was normal, he would need to have that, right? You don't want to be bullied. You don't want to be pushed around the, the play yard. No. He's saying, will your father really be able to protect you from harm if this is the course you want to go? In his baptism, Jesus was aware of the fact that death on a cross was what is going to be necessary. That's what baptism is all about. The symbolism of going under the water is the, the, the reality of dying. 
So Jesus, three years before it ever happened, at the very beginning of his ministry, knew that death was the end of the road. But even though he knew that, his personal safety was the last thing on his mind. Three years later in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Peter was drawing his sword, Jesus would say, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put, in, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So if Jesus on the eve of his death wasn't interested in calling angels down to exercise their right-hand power here three years earlier, he's certainly not worried about whether angels would be able to protect him if he falls off the high point of Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus was interested in. And then there's actually a fourth temptation that's referred to here at the end of this passage. The devil leaves him, as Luke says, until an opportune time. Well, that opportune time would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was arrested and betrayed. At that point, three years later, Jesus, if he, if he didn't already know it clearly, now knew exactly what God's plan was. That plan was going to be the cross. Jesus was going to be arrested, a mock trial, going before both the Jewish and the Roman authorities, being uh, condemned to death, being crucified. Jesus was very clear in all that. And, and he said, Lord, if you can take this cup away from me, if, if we can find another way of accomplishing this, then, then let's do that. But at the end of that evening, he said, not my will, but your will be done. That's the prayer that Jesus offered as Satan was tempting him one last time to choose some way other than the way of the heavenly father. Jesus says, no, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Jesus, in other words, is confident throughout these temptations that his father has the ability to accomplish his purposes, no matter how upside down or backwards they might appear to we human beings or even to the devil. So Jesus was tempted in three, no, four different ways here. How was he fortified? What was it that helped Jesus to be able to withstand those attacks, to be able to turn aside those temptations, to be able to be faithful to his heavenly father's will? What was it that strengthened and fortified Jesus? I'd suggest first and foremost, he was filled with the Spirit. Remember at the baptism, the dove representing the Holy Spirit came down upon him. Jesus was in intimate fellowship with his heavenly Father through that Spirit. Secondly, there's the identity that I mentioned at the beginning. Jesus' identity was rooted in his relationship with his Father. He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was God's son and that God loved him and that God was pleased with him. Since that wasn't in question, his identity wasn't in question, Jesus was able to say to Satan, no, your, your offer is a second best offer. <laughs> Not interested, thank you. And then thirdly, Jesus was filled with the word of God. He was filled with truth in the face of lies and deception. In each of these cases, when the devil tempted him, Jesus replied with scripture. Scripture that we think 
Jesus had memorized pretty early in life. It's not outside the outside the realm of possibility that Jesus, by the time he was 12, 13 years old, had memorized the entire Old Testament. And you know, if you spend a lot of time trying to memorize something, it stops being just about getting the words in the right order, right? You start to think more deeply about what those words mean. And so for a lifetime, for 30 years, Jesus had read and memorized and studied and contemplated and meditated those words of Scripture. As a matter of fact, he probably borrowed those words of Scripture and made them his own in his own prayer life. Jesus prayed Scripture Probably not just the Psalms, but every passage of Scripture became the words that Jesus used in his own prayer life. So Jesus was fortified by the Spirit, by being loved by his Heavenly Father, and by knowing the Word of God deep, deep, deep way down in his heart and soul. I've been trying to take you back 2,000 years to get the feeling of what it was like for Jesus to be tempted. But we really don't need to do that, do we? The, the temptations that we face today, the temptations that every single last human being faces virtually every day of our lives are no different than the ones that the devil threw at Jesus, are they? We're depleted. We're alone. We're in harsh circumstances, and the devil comes to us in many of the very same ways to tempt us. And we are also fortified by the Spirit and the Word of God. Just as Jesus was, so are we. But we have, I'm not sure if I want to call it an advantage, but we have the opportunity also to be fortified by the wisdom of 2,000 years of believers who have battled temptation and studied the ways that the devil works. We don't only have Jesus's example here in Luke chapter 4, but we have Christian leaders from 2,000 years to help us. This morning, I'd like to spend a little time with just one of those. His name was Ignatius Loyola. I, actually, it was quite a long name, but I'm going to leave out other the, the other parts of it. Ignatius Loyola from Spain was born in 1491, 500 years ago. At the age of 26, he took up the life of a soldier and as often is the case, as a soldier, he was eventually injured in battle. And while he was convalescing, one of the things that he did was to read a popular version of the life of Jesus. That led to a life devoted to the service of Jesus. He gave away his possessions, and he began studying the word and studying the ways of Jesus. And he kept a written record of the spiritual insights that he had. He, he journaled, in other words. And eventually, that journal became known as the spiritual exercises, or what we often call the Ignatian exercises. Ignatius Loyola went on to, to found the Society of Jesus, which is better known as the Jesuits. Uh, the Jesuits, uh, other, unlike uh, other 
orders within the Catholic Church was not a monastic religious order that spent their time in monasteries or convents. But the Jesuits, their their home was on the road. They met people, ordinary people, right where they were, right in the midst of their harsh environment, right in the midst of their depleted lives, right in the midst of their loneliness. The Jesuits would become called contemplatives in action. I love that. The, the focus of these Ignatian exercises, and it's not all that big a book. You could look it up on Amazon and, and get a copy of that. Um, but the focus of these exercises was to figure out, to discern how Jesus's call and how his work in our lives happened, uh, including various insights into how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, how we can understand the moving and leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, but also importantly, uh, especially for what I'm talking about today, Ignatius uh, wrote down insights that he gained in how the evil spirit or how the devil works in our lives. One of the the things that we find in the Ignatian exercises are three metaphors for how the enemy works in our lives. Important metaphors that will help us to be able to recognize the temptations of the devil in our lives and to be able to resist them. So three metaphors. The first one is that the enemy behaves like a spoiled child. The devil tempts us as if he were a spoiled two-year-old. Uh, and two-year-olds are weak, right? They're immature. They have no wisdom. They they have no intelligence. Uh, the evil spirit is likewise uh, very weak and immature in spiritual things. He may have an elevated view of his spiritual uh, uh, strength because he's a fallen angel, but he's a fallen angel, right? So he's a spoiled child. And so uh, think of ourselves as we're being tempted by this spoiled child. Think of ourselves as being parents, parents with experience and wisdom and strength from our position of strength filled with the Holy Spirit. We can stand up to the petulant two-year-old, right? <laughs> we can say no to those demands, to that temptation. Even in the midst of harsh, depleted, lonely circumstances, a parent ought to be able to say no to a child. If you can't say no to a petulant two-year-old when they're saying, I want what I want and I want it now, then life is really going to be difficult, isn't it? You're the parent. You're the strong one. When the devil comes to you as a, a spoiled child with a temptation that's trying to, to get you off of the course that God wants you to walk, just say no. The second metaphor that Ignatius introduces us to is that the enemy operates like a false lover. One who is trying to drive a wedge between us and the true lover of our souls. And how do false lovers, ones who are trying to drive that wedge between us and God, how do they operate? They they operate in secret, right? They don't want to, the, the true lover of our souls to know what's going on. They operate in secret. Somebody said that wherever there are secrets, the devil is near at hand. Wherever there are secrets in your life, the 
devil can't be far away. Or think about the parental wisdom that we all probably heard at one point or another in our childhood, where the parent would say, if someone is telling you to keep something a secret, that ought to be a red flag. (laughs) It's not right if somebody is telling you to keep a secret. Ignatius says the way we combat secrets in the midst of the temptations that we're facing, the way we combat secrets is by revealing them to a confessor. Confess the temptations. Confess the things that the devil is trying to get you to do. The the amazing thing about confession is that it guts those temptations of their power. The third metaphor that Ignatius uses is that the enemy acts like a military commander. A military commander is going to find where the, the, uh, their opponent, the opposing army, has their weakest points. What's their weakness? And that's where they're going to attack. You don't go strength on strength. You find where they're weak and you, you battle your way in that way. Likewise, the devil is going to try to find us, find out what our weak points are. Where is it easiest to tempt us? What are the things that we struggle with most frequently? And that's where he's going to attack. We combat the enemy by fortifying our weaknesses. By God's grace, we strengthen the places in our life where we're weak. Jesus knew that he was weak and vulnerable there in the Judean wilderness, but he also knew the ways in which the devil would attack him. So he fortified himself with the spirit and with the word of God, and he prayed. He knew that he was the beloved son of God, and he wasn't going to allow somebody to drive a wedge between he and his heavenly father. Likewise, Ignatian Ignatius teaches us to recognize the ways in which the devil is at work in our lives. And by recognizing these methods and bringing our spirit-filled prayer life to bear, we can resist temptations just as decisively as Jesus did. I'd like to have you bring that image back to mind, that memory of the circumstances where you felt like you were in a harsh place in life, depleted of the strength that you needed, and perhaps all alone in that situation. Bring that, that memory back to, uh, to your mind. And then listen to these words. Listen how similarly they, uh, they describe the life of Jesus in, the, in our lives. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. In what ways are you hungry today? Do you think back to that episode in your life? At what point in that episode were you hungry? depleted in the midst of a harsh place in life, perhaps alone. What did that feel like? And to what degree during that time or this morning 
Do you feel like you're filled with the Holy Spirit? How close to God are you? How real does God seem to be you right now? In what ways is the devil tempting you these days? And is he coming as a spoiled child? Is he coming as a false lover? Is he coming after you like a military commander? Let's pause for a moment. Perhaps close your eyes and listen to the word of God that's coming to you right now in the face of the temptations, in the face of the harsh circumstances, the loneliness, the depletion. What is God saying to you about the temptations of your life these days? Let's just listen for a moment. Thank you for reminding us this morning that the devil is weak and immature and that we are strengthened by your infinite Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for reminding us again this morning that Hunger is not the worst thing that we can face. Death is not the end of the road for us. We don't have to be intimidated by the strong tactics of the devil trying to intimidate us or frighten us. We thank you, Father, for filling us with the love of Jesus. A willingness to submit to you, to obey you to be able to love you and have faith in you and trust you. Lord, you have fortified us in so many different ways. And so we give you the temptations that we're experiencing right now, perhaps even ones that we have yielded to time and time and time again. We surrender them to you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in our weakness. We pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your fellowship, your companionship, your presence when we are feeling alone. We pray, Father, that no matter how harsh the circumstances, emotionally or physically or relationally, Lord, no matter how harsh they may be, you are with us and you love us and you have adopted us as children and you are pleased with us. Fortify us, Lord, this week, the week ahead, we will be able to serve you and bring you glory in everything that we say and that we do and that we think. We love you, Father. Thank you for your grace. Amen.